Hello and welcome to Play, Train, Grow, a podcast that asks what is life really like chasing the dream of becoming a professional footballer. This episode is all about helping parents in sport, the parent and child relationship and the parent and coach relationship. I really hope you enjoyed it. I absolutely loved it. Richard's a top guy. Enjoy. This episode I'm joined by Richard Shorter, the non-perfect dad. Richard, thank you very much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Mate, it's a privilege to be here. Oh, no, the privilege is all mine. There's no doubt about that. So I was going to do a big, long-winded introduction, but I'm going to let you do it. Just to put it history, my my first love was youth work. Still is, to be honest with you. I love engaging with young people. So my first degree was in youth and community studies. Then I went to work for a church in Southend-on-Sea, um, ran a skate park, thought I was cool, but noticed that kids went home, which is a pretty obvious um, observation. But in your early 20s, you think you're going to change the world, don't you? And you think you're going to be amazing at everything. And I noticed if I really wanted to change the world, I probably ought to engage with those who have the most influence and power over kids. And so I kind of still carry on doing youth work, but try to think a lot more about how we might engage parents and carry on the conversations with parents. That was obviously in a faith-based community. Then I moved to a place called Romford, and started a church here with my wife, but we spent a lot of time doing parenting courses for the local authority. You're like, whoa, where's the sport in this, Rich? But actually, I, um, I've always I've always enjoyed sport. I was okay at rugby, okay at hockey. Um, uh, my kids all play sport. I've got three kids, uh, rugby mad, gymnastics mad, yeah, just enjoy participating. Um, and I get to play hockey with them. And so... Uh, about five, six years ago, I started Non-Perfect Dad to try and support parents and fell into the sports world, which was a natural fit. And I now have this bonkers privilege of working in a number of uh, performance pathway professional sports environments. Should I do some name dropping? Do you want some name dropping? Um, yeah. <laughs> Let's, well, I work for both, I work for both the, the Manchester Premiership football teams. Um not that I let the other know that. No, I do. They know. They know. Um, and then I get the privilege of working with some people like England rugby and England hockey and England cricket. And I suppose my main work is to help parents and coaches connect better so that in that conversation, there's better support for, for kids. Occasionally, I get to work with young people in that process as well, which is always really exciting um, as well. So non-perfect. And I work a lot of um, independent schools. Um, premiership football and rugby clubs etc just offering coach CPD or parent engagement just to help us reflect on some of those communication attitude habits we have about the other so that so that we're not interfering negatively or having a detrimental impact on, on kids experiences in that sporting pathway um, as we know the number of kids will make it through that pathway to be great um uh, or exceptional is very very small percentage uh, but what we do want to do is make sure that as many kids as possible have great experiences that impact them their love of sport in a positive way keep them keep them physically active for the rest of their lives hopefully keep them in love with the sport um, but also give them a bunch of transferable skills we might call it character or mental skills or whatever that they can then take and apply in other areas of sport, but in um, in life, employment and relationships, etc. That's brilliant. Thanks for that. And I just want to touch on the gymnastics part with your kids. I'm presuming your tumbles and rolls and flips, they're, they're, they're top notch. 
Mate, I have never mastered a roly-poly. I played prop in the days when you didn't need to be in any way mobile. Well, I wasn't I wasn't too unmobile. That's a bit harsh on myself. But no, I have, mate, I haven't got a flipping clue. And actually, gym, being a gymnastics dad from that point of view is lovely for me because because when you know a little bit about sport, I think that's sometimes really dangerous because you you start you, you know you just naturally start analysing. And I think the role of the sports parent is to stop doing that. And that's but that's tricky. But when you know absolutely nothing about the sport. You know, I can name some famous gymnasts, but but my daughter will finish. She say, "Oh, Dad, I lost some points today." I was like, "Did you? Why? You looked amazing to me." She because my foot was like this instead of like this. And, you know, there's like three millimeters difference. I'm like, "What? I couldn't even tell that will happen too fast." So, um, so no, it's it's it, it is a thrill to watch my daughter take part in gymnastics competitions because I, I just I'm a, I'm such an amateur. I'm just in awe of all of it. Just let autopilot on and just relax for once. Hey, totally. And you know. It, I, I hear different stories about gymnastics parents, but on the whole, I hear gymnastics is pretty intense parent sport. So like most of the clubs, when we've got competitions and we go watch competitions, it's like parents are banned from making a noise and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So, um, so generally speaking, I think parents find it quite an intense process where I just sit back, clap, take photos. I'm just like the amateur jag going, yeah, (laughs) even though we're not meant to make noise. I just, I think they're all great. It's just, just mesmerising. As the whole room turns to you and watches. Yeah, go to who's who brought the noisy gobby dad? But I'm not shouting instructions because you can tell. It's fascinating because some of the mums and dads tend to be mums, but not the ones that I watch. But they, you know, they've clearly got this like hand-eye signal thing going on to their children about what they should be doing next and how they need to improve on their next um, routine. Whereas I'm just like, go for it, big thumbs up. That looked awesome. <laughs> Yeah, like the baseball style, you know, the multiple hand touch, beer, nose, flip. Yeah, 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 mate, exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's totally like that because it's, they're meant to be silent and it's just hilarious to watch parents get that intense about it. I just, it's, <clears throat> it's such an interesting thing. So, again, that's why we're sitting down and we're looking to help parents who, I mean, not just get too intense and too involved in it, but just from all your time working with parents, like what are the most common questions you get asked? Yeah, so the most common challenges, um, which spring the questions are, you know, my kid's just been dropped, uh, my kid's injured, and motivation stuff um, would probably be the the, the bigger ones. Um, uh, and then the sub-layer under that would be around motivation, um, around resilience. Parents love a bit of a talk on resilience. No one really understands resilience, but parents love it. Um and um, and dealing with their child's disappointment, so losing, being subbed off, et cetera, et cetera. Those would probably be the the second tier of of issues that come up, and that's they're very very common. I mean, I will get a couple of emails a week from parents going, "Help, my kid's been dropped. What do I do?" I'm like, "Chill out, love them." That's pretty much it. Just, just be a parent. So. <laughs> Yeah. Just but yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's but because you feel under so much pressure to make something happen emotionally in them. Like they're like a parent would be like, Oh, Rich, they've been on the Xbox for the last two days and they're really mopey around the house. So it's like, well, wouldn't you be if something really important in your life disappeared? I would have mope. I'll mope. Probably play on my Xbox for two days if something like that happened to me. If they're still there two weeks later and they're not engaging with friends or eating well or whatever, then yeah, that's then becomes a cause for concern and the mental health first aid training that we've all taken part well hopefully a lot of us have taken part in recently would say that 
um, a kind of dip that's longer than two weeks is probably something significant and needs some external support from your GP or the team sports psych or something like that. But but yeah, it's okay to be mopey. It's totally okay to be mopey and sad. Um, but parents feel uncomfortable when their child's mopey and sad. It's not nice. You know, we, 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 we live in the age where every advert has every kid as happy and every parent facilitating that happiness. And um, so yeah. when our kid is mopey, do you ever get asked about silence? Like, you know, the awkward silence at home or, or anything like that? Because it's an area... No, I don't. Because parents feel the awkward silences and that's the problem with awkward silences. So so very few parents... And look, I'm a parent myself and I just realise sometimes I just need to shut up now. Or I realise I accidentally feel an awkward silence. It's horrible in awkward silence. But, but you do need to leave the awkward silence to let your kids process stuff. Just chuck something out there, let it hang. They might agree with you, they might not because um, otherwise you're just micromanaging their emotions all the time and that's really really unhealthy but yeah no I've I don't think I've ever been um no that's not true I've been asked about parent by parents who say they don't get anything back from their kids so I do I do I do get asked about that not often but I do get asked about that um but uh and I do have parents say they don't know what to say but very rarely will parents say well, I don't say anything and that's awful isn't it you know so it's so, it's so difficult even from my coach's perspective you'll talk to the lads and nothing comes back and you're just like okay let's go again <laughs> it's just you know well I think cool. I, I think um my youth work would tell me that just some kids just grunt and then but there's an awful lot going on under the surface some kids say a huge amount of words and there's nothing there's very little critical thinking reflection it's just gibberish it's just you know um some kids grunt and there isn't much going on and some kids say a lot and it's quite deep and reflective and everything between those kind of four corners is is happening really i i think i think particularly with teenagers i mean it's different if they're preteen but particularly with teenagers it, it would be um their response is of course something that you can judge on whether they're taking stuff in and how they're feeling and how their mood is but it's it's not it's not the sole thing to be using it's it's um so you know my son had a bunch of mates around on friday night for a socially distanced fire and they all got our axes out and chopped wood and i thought one of them was going to kill the others but i was still, but they're all still alive and everybody went home okay but to listen to them hanging out together was really really cool but of course when i went out there you know my son was really happy and, and i went out to just correct some axe usage in a friendly way i mean i wasn't like you know it's just like mate you're not going to cut that bit with that axe you need to use the other one or whatever and, and and my son was like, all of a sudden would turn back into grunting teenager because I was out there. But I could hear, I could see that he was having an absolute great time. So the danger of parents just using the communication as an interpretive factor for how their kids are is not very, it's, it's not the sole thing. It can be indicative and it can't, can't be of a kid who is struggling or withdrawn or or, or not quite sure how to fit in. And in what areas do you like? Do you actually really enjoy working with? So you've talked about, you know, the main ones being like resilience, motivation, or injury. Is there topics that always come around and they just energize you and jump in? Great question. Oh, I've not had that before. That's a good question. Mate. Um, I uh, yes, there is. I, I, I. I really, I really enjoy talking to parents about how to talk to their kids about puberty. I think that's something we're a bit rubbish at doing. So I'm 
pretty open and honest about talking to kids about sex, puberty, porn, and all that kind of stuff. And I just think that's a, so I really enjoy that conversation. Um, I really enjoy the conflict stuff. So, so I, so I think if we can help parents understand how to deal with teenage conflict and look, I'm not, I'm no, I, you know, I brand myself non-perfect dad, Johnny, for a very real reason. That is that, that there's no such thing as a perfect parent. When I started a parent coaching, you know, business, I Googled parent coaches and I just saw all these parent coaches with their perfect kids around them and their perfect clothes and their perfect smiles. And I just thought I could get a photo of me and my kids like that, but it would cost me a fortune in bribery and it just wouldn't be real. Um, and so I just like flippantly called myself the non-perfect dad in a couple of contexts. And, um, and it just like people are oh, so glad to hear someone call that refreshing. So, so I'm not the perfect parent dealing with conflict. Um, but if as parents, we can learn to manage our own emotions and manage our conflict with children and coaches, we will make the sports experience for kids a lot better. And if coaches can manage their emotions and manage the conflict better with parents, we will make the sport experience better for kids. So, so, so in our culture, I don't know what it's like up in Scotland. I'm sure you guys are far more advanced than us. Uh, no, I imagine it's shared, very much shared. It's, it's, it's going to be shared. I like that. It's very gracious of you, mate. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I don't think we're very good at dealing with conflict well. Um, and I think the first reason is because we just pretend it doesn't exist. And and then when conflict does exist, we blame somebody for conflict. So somebody always has to be in the wrong because there's conflict rather than accepting two or three or four dynamic human beings in a pressure situation with in an institutional culture's bigger so you know you you you're a uh high performing scottish football club you know when you put all that together if there isn't conflict i'd be really worried about you all in fact i would just think there's something really weird going on either there's a dictator somewhere who means making sure that nobody can express any emotional dissent um or you're all just on a completely you know you just don't get what the purpose of you being there is and that would be weird as well so if you get the purpose and there isn't a dictator then then there will be conflict and and the challenge for us all of the parties in that is a to model conflict well to young people and B, to work out how we handle that conflict together. So I love those conversations when I get an email from a parent going, oh, the coaches have been awful, blah, blah, blah. Or, or an email from a coach who's going, you wouldn't believe what our parents or a parent has done this time. And, and when we try and create some empathy and compassion, when we try and um, understand what good communication in the midst of conflict would look like, then we can start to make progress. We don't always make progress because some people – make those conflict issues the hill that they insist they're going to die on and that's just really unhealthy but it's but you know it's people's right to do that but i do I do enjoy getting involved in conflict i've mediated quite a bit of conflict um uh for sporting governing bodies uh my experience of parents because most of the parents we met in the church were now came through social services so they're all referred through a social worker so conflict and crisis tended to be quite high up their parental needs so I suppose I've had to learn quite quickly how to deal with people in conflict and how to deal with it reasonably well because if you add fuel to that conflict then you are not helping the situation and sure look I haven't always got it right um, sometimes that means we're taking the side of the social worker sometimes that means we're taking the side of the parent to to balance out the power structures to enable 
better resolution. Hopefully, often it's me just trying to mediate kind of gently in the middle. Um, but yeah, conflict. Uh, uh, and what I hear particularly from high-level sporting pathways is when a child gets dropped, then they'll get the poison pen letter from the parents going, well, our child's been in your pathway for seven years. And in year one, you did this, this to them. And that wasn't very good. And in year two, you did this, this, this. I mean, year three and, and good clubs and good sporting environments are right now going, actually, we want to hear that in year one. We want to hear that stuff in year two. You're not going to get dropped for dissenting against some of the decisions we made if you dissent well. Um, I think, cause I think what parents need to realize is that, that coaches do judge their kids on the parents' behaviour. And 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 co- all, all good coaches will go, obviously, Rich, we, we we would never judge a child on the parents' behaviour. But that's just, I mean, that's you've got to be the most self-aware, self-controlled coach in the world ever to not go flipping heck, here come their mum or dad. Because it's just, now, if, if, if coaches have reached that high status, then that's cool, I'm pleased for them. But not many human beings have, because if someone toxic comes up to you, it's very hard not to be defensive or um, resistant to that. So so I think there's a whole conf- set of things around conflict there. You, you asked me what I get a buzz about. Here you go. You, you opened a can of worms. I'm just going to keep going. Um, firstly, I think if institutions have to be really aware of how they invite conflict, and, and I think institutions should be inviting conflict. They should be creating a set of structures that welcome alternative views to the ones in which they present so for example great coaches will often say to me rich yeah we have an open door policy but no one ever uses it it's like yeah because you have to force them through the open door i think you have to make them um you have to make parents in in non-crisis times use the open door so that they're used to expressing views that are fairly ordinary or whatever and so that when they have a counter view to express that they use the open door um, because it's all very well saying I have an open door, but I live in an ivory castle with a very powerful sporting football team badge on the front of that door, and and it just creates fear and trembling of your ch- of the, your child's sporting future if you cross that and challenge it. Yeah, there's, yeah, I love that. There's there's so many things I'm writing down here. What one is like you've already started talking about hierarchy. How there's there's a, a constant hierarchy, then the influence of power on top of that from the, the clubs. But also the parents on their, their children, there's a, an automatic power. But it, on the subject of, of conflict, I'm trying to think of words to, to sum it up. So is it like vulnerability, um, some sort of communication flow backwards and forwards? Yeah. Um, are they really things that you'd look at? Yeah, they are. well, the first thing I would look at is accepting your power, okay? Because because you might be the nicest person in the world, mate. You might be the most approachable person in the park, in the pub, in the shops. But when you put your sport team tracks you on, all of a sudden there is a power thing going on. There may be other power things in, in who you are anyway. I don't know. I can't see you might be super tall or whatever. So there might be a physical power thing. There you know, might be an educational power thing. You might have hundreds of degrees or whatever. But, but, but I think good humans can make yourselves approachable in, in all that. But as soon as you put that badge on, there is a deference that people give you or there is a, a there is a power gap. And I think the worst thing a coach can do is go, yeah, but it doesn't matter about my badge because I'm just Mr. Approachable. No, your badge matters. And that is power. And that power is about selection and deselection. And there is a huge fight in the football world. There's a, there's a financial power to it because if players get selected, there's a fame power. There, 
There's a prestige power. There's a pride power for parents. So let's stop pretending that this power isn't there, doesn't exist, or let's stop pretending that it's balanced because it really isn't. And I think once we've recognised that, that can then help us to do those other things that you talked about, which is have like a communication flow, um, to have op- – I mean, I'm all for kind of parent rep groups, parent questionnaires, any 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 information gathering techniques that will enable – clubs and institutions to hear from parents about their experience um if your club has abused their power and put parents in a box and it's been difficult you probably need to start asking those questions anonymously but i went into a school recently they've got a parent rep group the director of sport has run that group superbly um and and the parents were really honest like really really honest about themselves and about the school but no one felt threatened by that honesty um and the honesty was shared to facilitate growth so so there is so you've got that awareness of power and then with that comes your communication strategies and the vulnerability with which you do that so i know a very famous premiership football club in this country and this was they did this without me um they talked about having an open door policy but they realized no one used it so they had parents meetings and they gave everyone a bit of paper had a box at the front and they basically said everybody write down your criticisms on the paper put it in the box anonymously or with your name on we don't mind everyone put it down anonymously the manager of the premiership football club got them all out read the first one out and went yeah you're right we need to do better at that and uh this is what we're trying to do to work on it or you don't know this yet but in the next 12 months we're going to be doing this and i really appreciate you putting it next one yep i can see there's some validity in that and he and he went deliberately out of his way to affirm the stuff and and he said it was amazing because he only has to do five or six like that by the end of it parents were putting their hands up going and adding comments to the issues that he was because straight away they realized gosh there's a vulnerability here he isn't reading this paper and going yep well that may be how it is but we're this club suck it up your boys are in our pathway if you want to play on that famous football pitch you just need to deal with it next one yeah that's not really an issue you need to suck it up you know that he offered really cool vulnerability in that process now he was quite he used his power to get them to write on a bit of paper. <laughs> and I think that's just good use of power. We've got to get rid of this kind of utopic dream that power is, um, we can neutralise our power just by being friendly and nice because we can't. Yeah, it's something I think it's becoming more aware. Like you're talking about um, just size and stuff. Like I'm 6'2". At the moment, I'm unkept is how I describe myself because we're just out of lockdown. So Scottish unkept. It's a sim- well, I mean, I'd like to think I'm providing a stereotype, you know. <laughs> but um, like you touched on it, you touched on it earlier, like um, bias and all, all these sorts of areas of conflict and not communicating. Like a bias can also start coming in, so that the presumption, is, as you said, uh, we're going to treat the child like the parent behaves or we're going to treat, you know, the club as we are all powerful. And it's only when something gets really, really extreme that it then all goes and explodes. And is that something that that you come across quite often that you're brought in as a fire extinguisher to go, oh, no, look what's happened. And you could go, well, if you just go back to talking about the smallest of things, you can then build a foundation or a relationship on that. Uh, Yes, I think... Um, am I brought in like a fire extinguisher? I am brought in like a fire extinguisher by coaches who who perceive that parents' behaviour in certain parts of the pathway or school or club is unhealthy. 
Um, and often when we unpack that, coaches are just adding fuel to that behavioural fire without realising it. Um, I am brought in to support some uh, parent crises. Um, uh, selection is selection is is probably one of the biggest conflict creators, and I think institutions have it within their power to make to do a lot of work around helping parents understand the subjective nature of selection. Um, I I think most of sport is ridiculously subjective, like. Like even the science, even when you start reading the papers, yes, of course, there is some stuff that would indicate best practice would involve certain principles of behavior. But even then, how you read and interpret and contextualize that is subjective to you. So therefore, most coaching styles and selection styles, particularly in football, I mean, even if we're talking athletics or swimming, which is like an individual timed or measured sport, there's still a huge amount which is subjective about that sport, even if the outcome is not as subjective because the outcome is is measured but uh, um but then obviously in football the outcome is measured by the number of goals as well but but an individual player's performance in a football team is always going to be subjective because you know no one player ever creates a team to win or lose you, you know um or very rarely perhaps we should say not never um and, and and so i think i think it's up to sports clubs to own that subjectivity and to be honest about that subjectivity and then help parents understand the complexity of that subjectivity and how you as a sports club manage that subjectivity yourself. So I did some stuff with Somerset County Cricket and I've done a couple of talks for them. And every time I've done a talk for them, for the 15 minutes before I've spoken, the Academy Pathway uh, officer has got up and just very quickly explained uh, explains selection, what they're looking for at what ages and their selection criteria. And he has been exceptionally honest. So he's like, um, actually, at the moment, we know we are going to have a shortage of um, fast bowlers in about three years' time. So if your kid happens to be a fast bowler, so I'm talking cricket to a Scotsman, is this all right? We, we're doing okay. I've played it all the way through my life. Oh, cool. That's, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. I know Scott does. <laughs> um, so... So they were just really honest, basically going, the likelihood is we will be taking professional contracts on with kids who are fast bowlers. We don't need any left-handed batsmen at the moment because we've got seven or eight of them in the club fighting for two or three positions. And I just felt that was just really, really helpful. Unlucky if you happen to be a left-handed batsman at 15 in that age group, but at least you know, at least you and your parents know, I'm a left-handed batsman, that's my speciality. This club aren't looking for that at the moment. Now, of course, they would say they'd never rule out anybody who was exceptional completely, but they had a preference for what they were looking for and how it worked. Uh, my son is in the very um, low stages of a rugby pathway. And again, they have been exceptionally honest about what they look for. Um, and, and that's quite helpful in having conversations with my son about do you meet that criteria? Now, of course, talking to a 16-year-old about whether they meet a criteria or not is quite tricky because 16-year-olds struggle with objectivity, and that's fine as well. <laughs> um, but I think I think using that power, um, being honest about it, and, and having that conversation, which helps clubs and parents handle that, avoids those kind of firebomb moments. The, the problem is that... You need a level of vulnerability to put your hand up and say, let's just stay on the selection thing. Selection is subjective. This is our subjective way of doing things. This is this present cohort of star selective, subjective way of doing things. We might be wrong, but this is how we're going to do it. 
And some some sports teams are really good at owning that vulnerability. And some sports teams still want to say, no, this is the way. And I mean, subjectivity is such a big thing as well, because you've got like our birthday age, sorry, our age groups run January through December up here. And I know most down south run the school year. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Got the January, February, March, April bias, which happens across like all sports. But yeah, in terms of mine and football, like I look at every single age uh, team sheet and at least half the first four months. So there's even beyond that sort of selection, there's also so much more that maybe we need to, to raise as issues or topics to to talk about because I don't know, we're delving into talent development or talent ID and scouting and loads of different avenues, which I'm trying to avoid. So I want to keep this on, on parents, but. <laughs> but I think, but I think, I think the reality is behind, well, you make a good point because behind that selection process is a whole science understanding philosophy of talent ID um, of your team's culture and way of doing things, of staff resources. Because most talent pathways I go into, okay, I go into some of the really big ones where they're just resources rich and they can they can appoint a member of staff to do anything new that they fancy. But not all, that's very few clubs have that kind of spending power. Most clubs have a limit. And that means that parent engagement um, perhaps isn't as good as it could be not through lack of want, but because, you know, they can't afford someone full time. Non-perfect dad isn't cheap. Um, you, you know, so <laughs> so there's only, that was a joke. I'm pretty reasonable if you get in touch. It is, is, again, I just think it's that honesty about just saying, look, you you are parents. We're not expecting you to understand that whole talent ID. Um, you, we can try and explain it to you. What we are expecting you to understand is that this isn't easy for us. Um and that this is and the, the numbers game about producing um, top-end athletes in whichever sport it is is so small that we're not we, we're, we're not considering your kids as elite kids under 13s or whatever. What we're saying is at the moment, your kid's got this great opportunity. Steal as much from this great opportunity as you can, kids. Learn what it is to be a good to be coached well. Learn what it is to be in a high-pressure environment. Learn how you handle that pressure. Get the coaches to support you in developing that, but hopefully good coaching is doing that sort of thing. Learn what your emotional triggers are and your own emotional bias, et cetera, et cetera. Learn all those things. And if you stay in this process and end up with a professional adult contract, brilliant. But for the majority of you, you won't. So enjoy it now and take it and move forward. Um, I don't think parents have to be fluent in the talent ID of the sport, but I think the the, the institutions could be very could be sorry the institutions could help themselves and the parents more by just being really honest and being honest with the kids as well um kids don't have to understand the whole process but unless we are deliberately uh, and intentionally supporting learning and by learning i mean more than just one webinar at the start of the season telling parents how it is and that's done then then um then we are inviting conflict and then you do get into that kind of like parents commenting on certain parts of talent id and and, and the science of that etc without knowing the full story but because you haven't equipped them to understand that that's your world and their world as parents is slightly different that that's what that that's what creates the challenge yeah, um, what, what's coming to my mind is one of my favorite phrases which is 
I could have been knocked over by a feather. I use it. I got it from a friend of mine, and I do. I love it. So I want to ask you, when was the last time I could have knocked you over with a feather in, say, like a really positive case where you've sat down with a club or a coach or a parent and thought, just, wow, that's fantastic? That's a good question. Man, that's a great question. Um, well, there was that sports, the parents rep group that I was telling you about that just, like, like I tend to get invited into institutions that are already doing parent engagement pretty well because institutions that aren't doing parent engagement pretty well probably don't feel the need to use a parent engagement person if that kind of makes sense you know so um uh i did an interview with a welsh sprinter recently and i need to put that up and just listening to her parents talk uh, her and her parents talk about their athletics journey was just lovely just just absolutely amazing that that was just a real privilege to eavesdrop i I mean i facilitate the conversation but real privilege to eavesdrop in on that conversation Oh, give me a moment. Now my dog's barking to distract me as well. Oh, shush. That's a great question. I did a session for some hockey players recently, which was like under 15s, under 16 hockey players. And just talking to them about some of the pressures that their parents put them under, which was really unhealthy. It was, it was fascinating. It was quite sad, actually. That wasn't the feather knocking over moment. But they're trying to help them think about ways in which they might manage their own parents. I was really impressed with their wisdom. Really impressed with... Actually, they kind of knew it. They just needed a little bit of permission to try and raise these questions with their parents in ways that were healthy. What were a couple of those things that they heard? Is it comparisons, conversations and card journeys? What were these sort of things you were talking about? A lot of pressure. They felt under pressure from their parents to perform well. One of the kids put... um, my kids tell me I'm getting, my parents tell me I'm getting fat, which you just think like for a 15 year old and it could have been a boy or a girl, which I think if it's a girl, it's probably even more problematic just because of the way girls and boys manage that image issue. But I, it, that still affects boys. So um, compare me to my friends, compare me to pros. They put um, uh, un- unreasonable criticism, which I just thought was an interesting phrase. It wasn't unreasonable. So we unpacked that a little bit, um, but certainly the car journey again, seems to be, one of the the main places of conflict, not conflict, but a pressure creating moments for kids. And then they knew the solutions or they knew how they wanted their parents to behave, um, which was basically just to ask them because, because we, we know that sometimes kids do want technical and tactical stuff off their parents. It's not, it's not that kids don't ever want that. It's just, as parents, we have to resist the urge to give it. If the, if the kid asked for it last time, doesn't mean they want it this time. And we have to let the kid um, manage that journey and manage, um, set the agenda. Sorry, not just manage the agenda. We have to let the kid set the conversation agenda. And we would we make a, a massive mistake in thinking that if they asked something technical and tactical last time or when they were eight, that when they're 16, they still want it. Yeah, like, so on that managing agenda, what's come to mind is the word failure and mistakes. So I'm going to I'm going to presume you come across this a lot. So I, I like to try and redefine failure. So I'll ask the players who's going to be the first to make the mistake and to try and neutralise mistakes. I just had the boys out for a, we did an in-house sort of friend at the weekend and we're trying to spread out and pass the ball out from the back. And one of the players said, but what if we give it away in the middle and there's no one to protect the goal? And I just said, I'm not bothered about that. And, you know, we play our way. I trust you. I trust you're all going to get better. So just try it. So what what do you do when it comes to failure, you know, that really powerful world, that it, word, sorry, that is failure? 
Yeah, I shout at my kids, throw things at them, um, make sure they realize. No, I don't. I don't do that. Um, yeah, failures. Failure is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think in that immediate moment after failure, lots of kids feel that emotion quite deeply. And when a parent says, oh, it doesn't matter, don't worry, whilst I think that's actually true, you know, let's just take your analogy. You know, you try to pass it out from the back. You passed across the face of the goal. There was no one there to defend the keeper. Someone intercepted it and put it top right-hand corner very nonchalantly. And it was, a, you know, good finish. And after the game, don't worry about that. You're trying the right thing. You remember Johnny said it doesn't matter. And you, you, you know, but to the kid, it does matter in that moment. And so I think, again, it's about letting kids set that agenda. I think it's about saying, after the game, how was that for you? Because actually, they might have handled that. They might have heard what you said and gone, actually, coach doesn't care today. That's cool. Coach doesn't care. What are we doing today? Can we not listen to Radio 4 in the car on the way home? You know, or the kid might be like mortified in front of their mates that they made that mistake. And I think as a parent, if you listen to the your children, you'll pick up which of those it is. and. And I think at that point, it's worth just letting them sit in silence, letting them have that failure. And then when there's a bit of space gone, say, hey, I noticed something upset you on Saturday. You know, so I would leave it till like Tuesday. Do you want to talk about it? No, 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 no. Okay, cool. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah. Okay, cool. What do you want to say? Have a, we have a more neutral conversation because the emotion's gone. I might want to remind them. Well, I've, I think the coach said it didn't matter, didn't it? Um. Yeah, but it didn't matter because, you know, my mates were had to go at me after the game. Okay, so who do you need to talk to about that? I need to go and talk to coach, don't I? Yeah, you do. You need to go and say to coach, you said one thing, but actually in the dressing room, we all still lambasted each other for making that mistake or whatever. Um, or if they still feel it emotionally, you know, upskilling them to talk to the coach, to do self-reflection, to move forward. As a parent, you don't really have to understand the tactic. Um, of course, the worst thing parents could be like is, well, it's not your fault. The coach coach was playing a stupid system and should have been, you know, that's that's like some of the worst things parents can say. And they do say that on occasion. Um, so I think, I think reframing the failure is important, but I think I wouldn't want to at the same time negate, negate the fact that actually, if it feels like a failure to a kid, it feels like a failure. And we, it, we can't ignore that. I think is what I'd want to say because because we know it's not we're cool about it but if they're not cool about it just reframing it doesn't help them move forward and it doesn't help the parents move forward and I think the role of parents in that process is to pretend it didn't happen not by as in not pretend it didn't happen but actually just carrying on as normal I think would be a better way of saying it so just carry on normal how's it going oh it's awful okay do you want to talk about it? no okay cool what we do this afternoon you know rather than going there it doesn't matter about the goal it didn't matter about the goal don't worry about the goal it didn't matter about the goal it doesn't matter about the goal <laughs> now they've got now they've got a you know an issue about it did matter about the goal and um, but I think the, some of the better things parent or not the better but some of the add-ons that parents could do is help the kids reflect on their emotion so you might want to say three or four days later, after that, you felt really low. Did you need to feel that low? No. Can you control feeling that low? Probably not, but you could probably put some processes in to help you snap out of that quicker. What would have helped you go low and come out of that quicker so it didn't affect the rest of your game? What would have helped you do that? Because um, there's nothing worse than being told to snap out of it when, because you can't, can you? You just can't snap out of Talk to the coach, talk to your teammates, practice it yourself, 
Uh, I don't want to get involved in coaching those tactics of uh, the actual practice because that's up to the coach to do. It's not to me to do. But I do want to get involved in coaching the mental skills that can come alongside that failure and, and work it through. Or, or the kid comes home and goes, yeah, I let that go on. But it's all coach's fault because he said that. And, 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 and Robert wasn't ready to receive it anyway. He was looking totally the opposite direction. So I'd be like, oh, so you're the victim. <laughs> um, and so that would be the coaching moment from a parent then. But I would still let the emotion die down. I wouldn't try and correct that then when they're emotionally in the pit of failure, despair or whatever. I, I would wait. And then I would be like, okay, on Sunday, you were blaming all your teammates. Is that healthy? what would have been a healthy perspective etc etc yeah it's a it's a good point that shift between blame and accountability which is difficult especially in teen years because emotions are just they're totally they're run by them and we look at it from this adult's perspective having forgot what it's like to be 12 13 14 15 and and put the wrong view on it quite often and, and you you have to as a parent you know the classic pick your battles you you well, let's take a Sunday. Let's say, you know, say they play football on a Sunday. They've got schoolwork. Um, their bedroom's a state. They've, they haven't done all their schoolwork. They've, they've been grumpy about the coach after football. They've been out of order to their little sister. Um, and they stayed up what, playing Xbox far too late the night before. Right? So, so, so they could have five things that they've stuffed up. They may have also worked really hard on two or three bits of homework, been absolutely lovely to their grandparents, help clear the table so it's not like they're just this spawn of satan child but there are five things you could pick up on if you pick up pitch your kid up on every single one of those things on the way home from the football match by the way here's my failure agenda today child then that's just exhausting and really condemning and so you do have to pick which of the failures you are going to pick up on and which of them you're not and for family life that may not be the football one that week for for their football, it would be better if it was the football one. But for your family unity and, and cohesion, actually, you need to talk about the way they're talking to their sibling. Or you need to say, was leaving your homework till last thing on a Sunday the most helpful thing? You, you know, so 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 you need to pick that battle as a parent, and um, and not grind down on everything. Yeah, what what I'm also kind of coming into my mind is you're, you're saying that if you sort of. You've got to remember the, the kids are, are doing it under pressure on the pitch as well. So we're standing often on the sidelines. Mm. Usually we've got the sort of, you know, the seven bits of information plus or minus two, you know, because we're in a relatively calm state, depending on your how you are on the sideline, of course. But then you've got these youngsters or, or teenagers on a pitch who can only really process one, two or three things at a time on the pitch too. So it's a really important point you're making there, which, you, you know, pick your battles is you know, if the kid is still high on nervous energy or high on regret, you'll really be sort of walking on eggshells at that point. It's really important. And, and I think it's the same for parents between the club as well. Like, like I think it is really cool if clubs can foster that open door mentality. But, you know, you're all humans. You're going to make mistakes. The, the club are going to make mistakes weekly on the way in which they interact with you. And do you need to bring it up? But if you choose not to, then I think you need to leave it there. It doesn't get added to a list of resentments that as and when the club really upset you, you then pour out the last 10 years of resentments because that's just me it's mega normal, mega human to do that, but it's mega unhelpful. And so I think if you choose 
not to raise something because you've got other pressing needs or you recognise that the coaches on the whole are good, then you need to just let it go. And, uh, you know, at that point you can sing a frozen song, can't you? But, you know, you just need to to choose to, to leave it behind, let it go and move on. Yeah, and a, and a big point on that for me, and I don't know about you, don't then drag somebody else in. Like, don't go, well, I know my son Robert here hasn't done that, but Johnny, by the way, look what he did. Like, avoid that too. It's, it's really important. Yeah, totally. It happens all the time, and I always end up, that's the, the sort of knocked over the feather moment, where it takes me a couple of seconds to go, well, hang on, we're, we're not talking about somebody else. And if that's such a teenager. Well, I think I think one of the things I remind people about conflict is we tend to regress our mental ages under pressure. Um, so, so I talk a lot about just I spend a whole lot of time helping teens stop falling out with each other. The fact they're adults, they're adults in a teenage state. They're not um, they're not physically teens, but mentally they're teens. So it is the name calling, it's the comparison, it's the grunting it's it's the uh, the grudge holding there's not there's not much adult behavior in any of that and so people regress down into that that teenage brain um to to do that or that teenage way of behaving um and uh yeah it's just really unhelpful yeah i actually have quite like that concept i don't think i've come across it quite like that because i i like to talk to the players about when you get into that state because we often train almost everywhere has a cage around it now so we're training yeah. a cage and it's like there's no tiger sitting on the other side of that cage. What, what are you doing? No, it's not going to climb over and come and get you. Yeah. I really like that idea there of sort of reverting to the teenage brain. I'm, I'm probably going to just write that down now and use it, to be honest. Well, well, we know that like emotional maturity isn't straight up, it's spiral. It's what it's why if you have a four-year-old and then uh well, two, three, four-year-old kid who's who's dry, and then you have another kid, they regress you know it's just it's 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 just naturally what we do we return to a psychological state of safety that uh, we tend to go back down the spiral and some people get stuck on that spiral and never get beyond teenagers so we've all met adults who just do not have a adult way of interacting with people that's not because they're on uh, the autistic spectrum or asperger's or anything like that it's just because their emotional maturity has never got past the teenage it's got stuck there um uh, but yeah, you do go back up and down that wheel depending on what stages of grief you're in, under pressure, employability, tiredness, etc. Yeah. Et brooding on for that week, like you said, you know, it could be anything that transfers over. Totally. It, I'm going to flick it, flick it here to maybe better sort of positive building. So, do you talk a bit yeah. about you know mindset, growth, fixed, grit? You know, Angela Duckworth, Carol Dweck's work. Do you do you touch on those areas? Um, yeah, I do. I think, you know, reading around the kind of science of the grit and fixed and um, closed mindsets, I don't know that it's quite as um, neat and tidy as the books present those things. Um, I certainly think an open mindset is just far healthier for society and for for learning. Um, I think outcomes, you can still have some pretty closed mindset people who seem to still get pretty good outcomes in life. So that's, I think that's, it's a challenge like that. But yes, I suppose like teachable, accountable, reflective, that kind of stuff. Um, learning, learning how to deal with failure. I mean, I was, I was just talking to a mum this morning in different context, but she was just talking about how her child's applying to uni and her and her husband are pretty much just swept up any mess behind him and always, you know, this kid had a university interview, but he's 
dad spent the night before swatting up making notes and gave the son the notes on the university and the university course for the interview and i'm just a bit like oh, the guy's 18 that's a bit weird um you know you just gotta let him fail but they don't want to let him fail so i suppose it's that kind of grit stuff of just not um there is a the very crude title snowplow parents which i'm very anti for all sorts of reasons but um but but it is that behavior of being a snowplow of sweeping those mistakes up from kids which i think does lead to a closed mindset doesn't lead to an open mindset and also doesn't lead to kids having the grit and and resilience opportunities that kind of come from it but um uh there's some great work by doctor i think his name is i'm rubbish with names musafa saka who has done some great stuff on resilience and just talking about how environment is really key to resilience and grit growing and and mindset growing. And that home environment is equally key. And so just working with parents around how they provide high challenge, but high supportive home environment. And that's quite tricky, I think, for home to do, easier for coaches to do in some ways, because a high challenge home environment can be considered to be pushy and um and so it's, it's an interest so, you know you do walk a little bit of a tightrope with that but um but but yeah so yeah no i do i, I think that character stuff it, it comes up quite a lot and can you link that um or do you link that to comfort zones a lot because we spend all this time talking about we need to learn and we need to improve we have to be just outside our comfort zone but not too far outside your comfort zone do you do any work on you know trying to establish what that feels like or looks like yeah well i think I think two things. One, again, that's down to the, the communication between parents and coaches. If a coach knows that they're going to intentionally put the kids outside their comfort zone, it, it would do well for the coach to make sure they've reminded the parents of that and, and let the parents know what that's going to look like. I, I talk about home being a harbour. So so I talk about that. I think home is an incredible comfort zone to provide kids away from sport because a sport I think sport it is right that kids are pushed out of their comfort zones in both um sport academia relationships etc and I think the idea of home is home should be that non-selective permanent comfort zone but it's a comfort zone that is preparing you and reminding you you're going to go back out into what the non-comfort zone you're going back out of the harbour you're not you're not <laughs> this isn't your this isn't your permanent dwelling place this is your place of rest so that it, you know you, you you have rest and you're back out you have rest and you have back out and i think that is and and it's right that when kids are back out of the harbour coaches are stretching them and putting them under pressure and de- and, and and existing outside that comfort zone but then when a kid comes back into the harbour they get rest from that, but they get equipped. So they may have been stretched too much by the coach. And that's where parents might encourage and support a conversation between parent and child. I'm sorry, between coach and child about, about that. Um, or they might not have been stretched enough. And again, that's where parents would help the child work out how to have that conversation with coach. So I think home is is, is should be faced towards areas of discomfort outside of comfort zones but i think home should be you know that kind of whole attachment theory stuff safe uncertainty uh, i don't know if you come across any of those comfort zones i think that, that that is the role of home primarily is to provide such a firm identity that a kid can leave home and go and do whatever and know that they can come home and be loved and welcomed etc should failure happen should they get deselected etc etc yeah that's really good stuff I, i'm just thinking and thinking, and I could ask so many questions, but I'm, I'm wary of our time, and I don't want us to do <laughs> long tonight. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish with with this question, which is: if I give you a blank sheet of paper 
to create a foundation of a parent-child relationship and then on towards whichever sport or coaches that they work with, what do you want to build or what would you build those foundations with? Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so the parent-child relationship, I would build with the parent and the kid having fun doing that sport together. So you talk about gymnastics earlier. We we mocked my my lack of, but actually I would just talk about just rolling around in the garden, going on a big slope and rolling down it, finding out who can balance off who, balancing along a tree trunk. Um, if it's rugby, it'd be chucking a ball and kicking the ball around. If it's cricket, it'd be practicing bowling. If it's football, it'd be kicking the ball around. Whatever standard mum or dad are, it would be. Let's have some fun. Are you interested in football? I, I don't know how to play football. Or I used to enjoy playing football. Let's kick a ball around. And in that kicking a ball around would come, you wouldn't be super competitive dad, but you wouldn't be complete pushover. It would just, you just let them have fun. So I think that would always be the first foundation because when they're younger, you can do that. I mean, you know, my son and I wrestle occasionally, but he's physically well beyond my strength capacity now. So I think that just fun basis to start off with. I think in those early days, I love watching you play, totally chilled out on the sidelines, very rarely mentioning goals scored or anything like that. Just, I love seeing you do this today. I love seeing you be a good teammate. I love the way you thank the ref, et cetera, et cetera. That would be the kind of firm foundation. Um, the next layer of foundation on that would become some really good questioning from the parents around, what did you learn about leadership today? What did you learn about yourself today? What did you learn about what makes a good teamwork? Um given at the right time and at the right volume. And the, and the, and the problem is that's all, again, that's subjective. So you have to play, you know, you're playing with this stuff. And because our kids are constantly developing, it's quite hard for a parent because you're playing catch up. So you might work out roughly what they need at this point of development. And just as you've worked it out, the little buggers go and develop again. And that, and that causes you, <laughs> that causes you the hassle of going, Oh, I just had that nailed. Damn. What am I going to do now? Um, and, and so that is the constant parent, challenge um but i think it's about trying to get that intuitive questioning down that kids and parents have together so so the kids learn mum and dad are going to ask questions they're well-meaning questions i can say no to them but they're questions that help me think about and get better and do do sport do engagement with sport better so that's the parent child one the parent coach one I would think at its most basic, it's the coach saying hello as often as they can to coaches, uh, to parents and vice versa. So I will always just try and say to my kids' coaches, thanks, coach. You know, Just try and give them a wave. Thanks, coach. Thanks for today. If if it's walking back to the clubhouse, I'd try and get interested in their life. You know, So I'd want to find out you played cricket. And I'd want to find out what you did, whether you batted and bowled. I'd want to find out something about you as a human being. And I would hope coaches could try and find the time to do that about the parents. Oh, how'd you spend your week? I mean, that's just a great question. How did you spend your week? Because uh, some people will be unemployed. Some people will be full-time childcare. Some people will work. Some people will juggle different jobs. So I don't ask people what, what job do you do anymore because I work in a community with high-level unemployment. So that's quite a shaming question if they, they do. I just, how did you spend your week on the Xbox? Oh, cool. What's your favorite game? You, you know. Um, you know. Oh, cool. I haven't played that. What's it like? So, so I think just the foundation of that is just showing interest in each other. And then, and then beyond that is just really upskilling parents as to what your coaching environment's about. So yes, that would be a parents meeting, which is interactive and explaining it, but it would also be parents invited to take part in coaching sessions. 
So, so you know, so I would challenge you to say to parents, bring your trainers along next week. We're on a 3G pitch. All sign the disclaimer if you break a hip, we're not paying for it. But we'd love to coach you the way we coach your kids for one night. You know, and your kids are going to be our assistant coaches um, or whatever, you know, and if, if the sport allows you to play with your kids. So cricket have done a great thing called All-Stars Cricket, where it's um, for the under tens it's parents and kids together doing a coaching session together now you know football or rugby obviously that becomes slightly more problematic because you can't have adults and kids playing together but you you find a way of facilitating a joint learning experience and then i would think certainly the gold star would have very clear lines of communication around conflict would be welcoming conflict and very clear expectation uh, communicated in a multiple different ways. The environment would be reinforcing all these values. So this isn't just um, a spoken meeting. You, you've you've structured the environment. So the parents have a pen. <laughs> you talked about cages. The parents have a pen, and in that pen are some key words or key people to help facilitate that. Not the terrible, we respect everybody here signs, because who the hell gets out of bed in the morning going, I'm not going to respect people, and then they see a sign going, oh, thank goodness, I saw a sign. Oh, phew. Otherwise, I wouldn't have respected everybody. I mean, I just, my mind blown. Uh, and we just know the science about behavior change tells us that just telling people what to do doesn't change or changes such a small percentage of behavior. It's just not worth, just not worth it. So I think, yeah, I think those would be my foundations. I think I've spoken enough there. Oh, brilliant. And I want to just give you a bit of time just to, to just again reinforce your or talk about your website. You know, you've got a Zoom coming up at the end of the month. I'm going to try and turn this over quickly to get it out. So, anything oh, cool. you'd like to, to just talk about? Yeah, what do people do? Uh, like Nonperfect Dad on Twitter or link Richard Shorter on LinkedIn or nonperfectdad.co.uk. Um, yeah, if you're a coach, drop us a line. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to talk about how we might support the club engaging with parents. If you're a parent, go and check it out. Uh, yeah, by the end of this month, we've got Zoom um, with uh, Katie Warner, who's an Olympic sports psychologist, works with GB Hockey, Bath Rugby. And we're just talking about well-being for leaders. Why We all know what good well-being is, but very few leaders are very good at actually doing well-being for themselves. So we're, we're going to kind of talk about how we do that. Um and then I've got a best-selling book, Conversations for the Journey, which um, has been an Amazon number one bestseller, which is a bit smoke and mirrors. It's not actually that hard to do that. But um, uh, but that uh, that's available from Amazon and nowhere else or my website. Um, and um, yeah, go and check it out. Go and have a look at what we've what we've got going on. Richard, thank you so much for coming on, buddy. I've loved this. Mate, thank you as well. That's us for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. We are currently in April 2021, so the course that was mentioned is for the end of this month by uh, Richard there. You can get me on Twitter, at PlayTrainGrow. I tweet, retweet, and likes. be really helpful to build a family or a fan base or any sort of foundation for knowledge share. My email is playtraingrow at gmail.com if you'd like to get in touch. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.